Welcome to the Culture File Debate. In 1969, the Canadian artist Betty Beaumont created an artwork photographically documenting the clean-up of a massive oil spill devastating coastlines in Southern California. The artwork was so effective in focusing the attention of the world on the devastation that this week the beaches of Southern California are once more under a black tide, choking inhabitants with its fumes and threatening endangered species from terns to humpback whales. Of course, it's just an image. It's not realistic to expect artworks to intervene so directly. Or is it? The relationship between art and ecology has never been straightforward. Why would it be? Art is never just education, never just propaganda. But the environmental crisis in which the world finds itself, of course, still seeps and sometimes floods into cultural production of all sorts, from Extinction Rebellion's art group, which provides downloadable artwork for use at protests, to Oliver Ellison's slightly more confusing transport of ice to the streets of Paris. But what can art use? Usefully do in our current emergency? Is there something beyond awareness that needs to be raised? What is art's part in remaking our toxic relationship with the world we live in? And indeed, what can art do for ecology? Here to discuss art, ecology and other matters this evening are our panel. Bill Jordan is author of The Sunflower Forest, whose influential vision sees humans often fractious and destructive relationship with their home planet as rooted in and even the same thing as humanity's disintegrating sense of community. The work of restoration ecology, the term he coined, is then as much to rebuild that community as it is to restore ecosystems, a process in which he sees artists as intimately involved. Hello, Bill. I'm glad to be here. Good to have you. Karen Power is a composer from Ireland whose work focuses on the natural world. She uses acoustic instruments, field recordings and environmental soundscapes in everything from orchestral work to sound installations and in the process creating new ways to listen to the planet. Hello, Karen. Hi. Catherine Farrell is a restoration ecologist looking at natural capital. She's worked extensively on the ecological restoration of Irish bogs that have suffered industrial cutting. And in 2019, she crossed the nature-culture divide with her first novel, The Easter Snow. Hi, Catherine. Hi. And completing the wall of Zoom, author, journalist and lecturer Paddy Woodworth, best known in these parts as the writer behind Culture Files, The Naturalist Bookshelf. Hello, Paddy. Hello, Luke. Paddy, to start, I'd like to get you to do a little work behind your microphone, a little imaginary work. Paint us a picture. Bring some landscape into our Zoom cells to get us started. Oh, I think I'd have to go to Killarney. Um, I'm struck by many things that Bill says in his book, but one of them is that restoration is never complete. And uh, in Killarney, it's extremely incomplete. And it's also a site of conflict, and I think that's important. So I'm thinking of the relatively pristine oak forests right up on the hills in Killarney and how they were very successfully cleared of invasive rhododendron and were therefore on the way to restoration around the turn of the century and how, due to an inexplicable change in management by the National Parks and Wildlife Service, you can now see the rhododendron. Well, I haven't been there for a couple of years for obvious reasons, but a couple of years ago, you could see it coming back. And, of course, you had to get rid of the rhododendron first, but then after that there's the problem of grazing. So what are you going to do about 
overgrazing in the area, which is stopping the oaks regenerating. And so I'm, I'm looking at the darker side. I find myself looking more and more at the darker side at the moment that so many of our landscapes in Ireland and across the world are, are ghost landscapes if they have much natural life in them at all. So that you could look at the oak forests in Killarney as ghost forests. There are magnificent oak trees there, but they're, most of them are 50, 100, 150 years old. You know, where's the next generation? It hasn't even got started yet. So those are the kind of scenes of of pain, conflict, but still hope that, that restoration takes me to. And Pally, one of the things that we're going to talk about today is you, you talk about pain there and the ways in which artists might help us to deal with those kinds of pain. And particularly now we were talking rhododendrons, I think, are, are, are a plant that are going to show up a lot in this conversation. But maybe walk us through what artists have been doing to deal with the pain of these situations and, and somehow play their part in restoration. Well, I'm very interested in the restoration of the forest preserves in Chicago. The interesting thing for me there was that the invasive plant in, in, the, in the Chicago forest preserves, the major invasive plant, is European buckthorn. Now, European buckthorn is a precious native tree in Ireland, uh, which never spreads very far or very fast, but its behavior, for complex reasons, changes in the American Midwest, and it becomes like rhododendron. And takes over from all the native vegetation. There are still parts of Ireland, like the V in Waterford, where people, you know, tourists are taken to see the rhododendron, and it's a very beautiful plant. Uh, so if you say to restore native species to that landscape and restore it to ecological health, you've got to remove the rhododendron, some people are going to find that very painful. I think we all find it very painful. Cutting rhododendron is physically painful. But so what can artists do instead of, as some restorations have done, trying to conceal the problems, trying to conceal the pain, maybe literally piling up brushwood around a tree that you've girdled in order that it will slowly die. Instead of doing that, expose the pain, expose what you're doing, and perhaps artists can find ways of performance, of interpretation that will help us engage with this pain better. Karen Power, your, your work has for a long time had the, this sort of um, ecological drive, but I think, I think it's something that you feel it, 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 you're not accepting a role. It's something that is an emergent quality in your work, maybe. It feels a bit strange in the current climate to accept any role. Um, as you say, I've been doing this for a long time, and, and for me, I'm, I'm a composer um and who's been listening to the natural world for over 15 years and been inspired by the natural world so it feels a little bit cheap to uh, imply that um my uh, work is about conservation um or is about something that it's that it's not as an artist my primary role is to open a space i field record in what I call extraordinary environments. I am interested in our connection to land, how that's changed, how we've changed, and therefore how the land has changed. But I guess you can't spend time in these places without being affected. And the very nature of the way I field record means that I spend weeks in one location just listening 
I spend most of my time trying to get away from people and trying to get away from the mark of people. There are huge parallels, of course, but at the same time, I guess I'm a composer and I don't have the knowledge base to know whether what I'm unearthing has political significance or not. Well, tell, tell us about one of the projects you've been working on recently. This year, you've, you've created uh, Bog Songs, which uh, brings in another figure that, that keeps re- recurring here. Uh, you'll do, do Rhododendrons next, I guess. <laughs> tell, us, tell us about Bog Songs. Yeah, so this is, um, I've been rather obsessed with the hidden world. So I've been looking for an excuse to focus on um, smaller and smaller creatures. And so all of the sounds are sourced in a very small location within a bog, uh, a micro world, shall we say. Yeah, the piece is an attempt to marry humans with, a, with I suppose, a nature that they don't necessarily acknowledge exists. The work basically brings an ensemble in to learn how to communicate with these um, tiny little creatures. And the whole thing is, is about an ensemble learning how to, how to listen and hopefully an audience becoming equals in that task. So, Bill Jordan, there you hear Karen, who, who is an artist working in this area and, and sort of would like to back out of a responsibility. I mean, maybe tell us a little bit about that. You, you conceive in the Sunflower Forest a very specific role for artists in a world in crisis. Well, yes, um, I think it's relevant here to, to comment that um, traditional societies commonly have uh, various forms of what are called world renewal rituals, um, which they perform to maintain the order of the universe, This to, to kind of make the sun come up, so to speak, which that makes no sense to the modern mind, but which makes a great deal of sense if you realize that what's going on there is that these people are, um, the way the way I understand it, they realize that their environment depends on the people who live in it um, and how they behave and therefore on their values and therefore on what I call the, t- the technologies of value creation, uh, which gets us right into ritual and the, the arts, which Victor Turner called the uh, daughters of ritual. Um, so I'd like to think that uh, a generation the next generation will begin to see people uh, connecting. Uh, well, people are connecting art with the environment already all over the place, of course, as people here know better than I do. But uh, developing uh, restoration as a context for that. I mean, the world renewal, as I say, um, tra- in traditional societies has been um, not literally planting trees and and removing exotic buckthorn and so forth, it's been renewing the, the values of the community. Now, we, we characteristically perhaps come at it in the opposite direction. Um, we have historically undertaken, over during the past century especially, to actually, actually restore landscapes. Um, and it's only much later, if ever, that we, we begin to realize that... Um, we're missing what I call the fourth dimension of value creation there, which is performance and the arts. So how would you envisage performance and the arts um, 
working with restoration then? If you look at a restoration program like the one I'm somewhat familiar with at the University of Wisconsin Arboretum here in Madison, the dramatic thing is prairie burns, uh, usually in the spring. And I think that's pointing directly at, the, at what I'm saying here, and that is, you know, look, look for the, the various dramas, large and small, uh, that, that emerge from this particular work, this particular form of gardening, if you will, and um, ask the artist to do something with them. Actually, uh, there's a, a, a somewhat uh, a very relevant example of this in uh, a suburb, northern, northern part of Chicago, uh, northern Chicago suburb, um, called Bagpipes and Bonfires, where they uh, accumulate brush from, from the clearing uh, restoration work going on in the forest preserves there in Chicago. And um, they get a huge pile, the size of a, a house. And then on, the, on or about the, uh, the autumn equinox, which was just a week or two ago here, they have a huge bonfire and, uh, and make it into kind of a big, a big event. And that's a real good, strong example of, of doing something uh, with the restoration process um, that, that gets people's attention, entertains them, <laughs> impresses them, uh, and, and informs them. Catherine Farrell, you've worked on, on many restoration projects in Ireland's bogs and projects involving artists. Do you see some of their function there that uh, Bill suggests there of, of useful rituals that are, that are otherwise missing? Yeah, I see a lot of parallels between the work of the ecologist and the artist. I mean, everything that Karen talked about in terms of as she goes out and she's looking for the sounds and she's trying to connect, you know, that's exactly what the ecologist needs to do in order to understand the landscape that they endeavour to heal. So, so we head out and I know my first adventures in restoration ecology you know you're full of the ideals and the goals and you're looking very scientifically and then the more you spend time in this landscape you the more it changes you exactly what Karen was saying you you begin to become more intuitive and you start to distill down to the sounds or the subtle changes in 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 the vista you know when you can see different species coming together so in in so many ways you you develop that connection that you know becomes an art form in itself and i i really feel that you know that artists often come into the landscape and i'm always um you know really interested in their different perspectives because they see things differently as well and Sometimes we come round to the same feeling or the same knowing. And some of the work that uh, Paddy referred to um, relating to the peatlands, Monica DeBath in her work, and you know, she described it as healing the wound in terms of the way we've really used, you know, really industrially used the, the peatlands of Ireland. And then the restoration work. So it's set out almost from a functional perspective. Uh, to get the the sphagnum regrown, the, the climate action going with the bog and carbon sequestered, all the real scientific terms. And then, you know, she's brought children out and given them just pages to draw and to see, you know, what they see. So I see so many parallels and I think we, we really can learn from each other. But the, 
a lot of the time where the sciency, the functional aspects of ecology, we don't quite convey that ritualistic power because we're a little bit nervous because if we start talking about rituals oh my god she's lost it you know but it's so important it's giving thanks in so many ways for this landscape for the lessons that we've taken over over that time and scientists don't often do that uh, but the artist can come along and you know in a wonderful poetic way just just give thanks and you know that makes a connection for people, for the ordinary person, to see that artist connection. And that that artist makes that connection better th than the scientist does. So we need each other and um, we need each other to communicate and to to give that sense of, of deeper feeling, of resonance that, you know, we walk in you know, we walk into the landscape, one person, but we leave very different. We can't describe that. We can't measure it. But the funny thing is, you, you've touched on where scientists are afraid of the ritualistic or the, but artists too. Um, and obviously I can only speak for myself, but, you know, there is, um, I mean, years ago, I suppose, I, like, I, I could have gone with the climate change wave with my art. And, and probably not being a destitute artist, um, you know, because that's that's the, the kind of that's where the, there's a lot of funding at the moment. And um, but I would say that I fear a practice or an art form not actually being recognized within itself um, and just serving another agenda. Um, it's not to say that I don't believe in the agenda. Um, and I will speak about the agenda and I will do my my part. However, the work needs to to stand. And, and for me, it needs to be heard within its own merits. Yeah. I mean, I guess both of those categories might be a little more unsteady than we than we suggest. They are scientist and artist. Paddy Woodworth, I mean, what 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 we kind of find evidence is there's a sort of back formation going on in that the, the, the things that we need to talk about are forming a different sort of artist. And I'm thinking of, for instance, in this year's uh, Turner Prize, that every single nominee is a collective rather than an individual artist. And I'm wondering, does what we're trying to talk about kind of is that reforming what we think an artist is never mind what a scientist is i guess i think it might because i think you know as bill has already indicated with these world renewal rituals it is you know we're talking about the artist as shaman in a way but then many artists already see themselves as shamans in some kind of way um and i'm i'm very struck i suppose what we're talking about is rituals of celebration and certain types of artists have a very strong role in, in this. And perhaps it's not so much creative artists as performing artists if we're going to make that very problematic division between the actor and the writer, for example. And so, I mean, in terms of ritual, I think the Midwest and other landscapes in the world where fire is actually part of the ecosystem and the ecosystem is fire dependent and, and that's what was so counterintuitive to me when I went to the Midwest first and the ecologist says burn it it sounds so wrong and it sounds particularly wrong here 
when burning has generally been problematic for the environment. But fire is something that's very easy to build rituals around. We've been building rituals around fire for many millennia. It's much more difficult to make a ritual about not burning, as you might need to do in the Irish uplands. So, yeah, I guess we're talking about performance. We're talking about celebration and ritual. And so not always the creative process, but perhaps simply by being together or, you know, observing together in these landscapes, creative artists also could draw a great deal of and maybe finding ways to respond to the very dangerous moment we find ourselves in. Yeah, I think if it's going to be done, then for one, it needs to be genuine. And so I think that this is part of the conversation. And and like Catherine touched on it there, it's about connectivity. It's about uh, taking the time. And this is something that artists, of course, can do. So, you know, any arts practice actually is space. Um, we, We can create space for people to engage with something. I think on that, Karen, you've hit the nail on the head because it's the actions that drive the emotions, that drive the connections. So, you know, what Paddy was talking about in terms of celebrating the water. So the water is like the, it's the life of the bog. Without it, 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 it can't thrive, it can't flourish. And so instead, you know, of, you know, the old ritual was going and cutting the turf, which has been sort of heavily romanticized and was backbreaking work, which I never took part in. But so I, I can't really comment, but I know the blocking of the drains and that has been done by hand in a couple of restoration sites by local communities. And it's that sense of getting your hands dirty and it's I've done something. I've made a difference and it's it's that connection. So it's it's almost that the artist has to be in the community. It has to be in almost rather than being outside because that builds that trust more and you're you're with the group as well. And I think that gives it more meaning and authenticity that you you talked about there, Karen, that, that it has to be authentic. It has to be real as opposed to relying on a funding stream which makes it just very unreal and very clinical. I might just jump in to mention that if you look at a basic aspect of human life, which is eating and therefore uh, acquiring food, agriculture and the preparation of food, uh, plausibly one of the fundamental failures of modern Western societies is that they don't ritualize that. Um, we, We kill animals all the time on a mass scale and a kind of a factory model production system. And um, it just becomes a commodity, and there's no, uh, no grace about it. And, um, well, it, we've even made some effort there to hide what's going on. Well, yes, we, you would, because it, it's, it's kind of disgusting. In fact, it's an encounter with uh, what Fred Turner would call the shame of our dependence on these other creatures in the landscape, uh, which we'd rather not uh, not deal with. Tell us more about this idea of shame. It's quite central to how you see the role of artists and, and, and helping us uh, to kind of come to terms with things that are inevitable in some ways, that we hide for the moment. Well, yes, well, I, I picked that up early in my thinking about, you know, asking myself what's restoration good for and exploring the value of that. At some point uh, in the mid-'80s, I read an essay by Frederick Turner, who's a, a poet and 
uh, English professor in Texas, um, and he he uh, wound up um, around 1990 proposing what I call a theory of values. He doesn't want to. I think he thinks that sounds kind of pretentious, but um, and that is that the, the self-conscious self is shamed by awareness of otherness, the mortality of the body, the otherness of one's body, and, and then everything beyond that. So what, what we're calling here is not about being naughty or doing something bad. It's about what I've been calling existential shame. And um, Fred, Fred's idea is that the function of ritual in the arts is to provide the tools that this kind of self-conscious creature needs to pass through, as Fred puts it, from shame to beauty. That is to metabolize that experience into the experiences of beauty, meaning, community, transcendent values like that. I mean, uh, anthropologist Gene Anderson has pointed out that anthropology knows of no traditional society that has succeeded ecologically, um, which is to say succeeded, since we all depend on our ecologies, without ritualizing our, our relationship with our resource base. Now, modern Western people, largely speaking, don't do that. And it, it, to my mind, it raises real serious questions about the, the modern project. We're hung up there on slightly on this question of ritual and, and this idea of uh, that we're, we're kind of afraid to use that word. How would we overcome that? As an artist who, who's not happy with the word ritual, where can they take us? Where can we go from there? Well, I, I, I wish I really knew, but I would think that the thing to do is just do it and not talk about it so much. Um, <laughs> that's that's a very bad idea on a radio program. I, I know, say. I know. I, I'm with Bill on that one. I'm, I'm definitely with Bill on that one. <laughs> you know, there's there's so much shame that comes with, you know, I don't want to say ritual because, you know, that aligns me with some sort of religious group or whatever. And, you know, it's just a way of being. And I, I think that's probably how, you know, the traditional cultures, those successful ecological connections were. They... You know, they didn't get hung up on this sort of categorization and classification. It was just, I, I am, I'm with, I am part of this, you know. So I, I think that's that's the brave new world that we need to uh, go into. Well, let me, let me jump in there and point out, uh, going back to my story about my son and the, the prairie fire, uh, I've been, I have said to some colleagues that let's suppose that um, you can't predict you can't schedule a prairie burn because it depends on all kinds of weather and condition of the vegetation and uh, safety considerations and um, which direction the smoke is going to blow and so forth. Um, so you thematize that, as Fred would say. Um, you say, okay, um, it'll be like a snow day. You don't know when it's going to snow either, exactly, enough that you're going to have to close the schools. So what happens is the morning the crew boss gets up and decides that she's going to burn the west end of Curtis Prairie or something, they send up a flare, and they, they close all the schools in the watershed, and the, the, the kids come out and witness the prairie burn, um, and it's a festival. Um, nobody calls it a ritual, but it's a lot of fun, and it's telling the kids that the grown-ups think this is real important. Um, so important that you get 
the afternoon off, or you know, they closed the schools and so forth. And you turn it into, uh, uh, well, it evolves into a ritual without scaring anyone away. It's more like a festival, um, and save the planet. I mean, if if you did that, it would become, I suppose, in a way. Uh, if you did that, you'd already have solved the problem because who's going to close the schools for a prairie burn, right? Um, we're not there yet, but it's worth keeping in mind, I think. Yeah, it seems that, uh, that there is the butterfly wings that'll change the world. If we could just uh, replace ritual with festival, because everybody loves a festival. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> We'd have no further problem. I'm afraid that's all we have time for on this week's Culture File Debate. I think we'll take uh, Bill's injunction there to go out and stop talking about it and do it. I'd like to thank our Culture File Debate panel, Bill Jordan, Karen Power, Catherine Farrell, and Paddy Woodworth. And if you forgot to check out Paddy's Naturalist Bookshelf on Bill Jordan's The Sunflower Forest, you can do that on the Lyric site. And we'll be back with Culture File Weekly next Saturday at 6.30pm. Till then, bye now. Bye, bye. everyone. Bye. Bye. Bye, Luke.